Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the future of the Supreme Court and the rule of law. Recently, the court has made some very interesting rulings on various cases. And so to make sense out of what's going on with the court, I've invited a guest back onto the program that's been on with me before. You may remember Michael Romano. Michael is an associate professor of political science at Shenandoah University in Winchester, Virginia. His research focuses on how politicians communicate with the public, including how judges write decisions and influence public debate around policy issues. He is the co-author of the book, Creating the Law, State Supreme Court Opinions and the Effect of Audience, and is currently studying how state governments impact the strength of democracy and adherence to democratic norms in the United States nationally. So first, Michael, thanks for being back on the show. It's great to be back. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, I know that you've been working on some research related to how the court or courts in general can affect democracy. And I want to talk about that today. And I think for listeners out there who have just tuned into the show, they may be wondering, well, how in the heck do we even find democracy when somebody says something is affecting democracy or democracy is in the balance, like what do they mean by democracy? That's a great, very uh, convoluted kind of question. It's kind of like holding, you know, jelly in your hand sometimes to really understand like, what are we talking about when we say democracy? Because, you know, popular adages of, you know, rule by the people kind of come to mind most readily to the public's perception. And that that is a big part of it, especially when we start to measure and really think about what this means in in a whole governing system. Generally, when we look at democracy, we look at two types of things. The first is that ability of the public to engage with the government and hold it accountable. That's usually by looking at things like Uh, elections, how they're held, how free and fair they are is kind of the common way that we like to define that. Uh, Freedom meaning that the people that uh, want to vote can vote, right? And then uh, fairness meaning that the people who are trying to get elected have an equal opportunity to get elected. And there are a lot of different ways that we can break that down even further. Um, The second part of it is usually how well does the government uh, protect people's rights and liberties. So that's a big part of really the judicial part of this and where a lot of uh, scholars and analysts start to really focus in on how well do courts who aren't always selected by the most democratic means, how good are they at maintaining that system of democracy despite being outside of it. So if someone says that perhaps we're becoming less democratic, because I I hear that, you know, we're becoming less democratic, what is it that they're pointing to for that? More often than not, what they're pointing to are uh, back to those kind of two main caveats of rights and elections are elections becoming less less of a central role in deciding who becomes an elected official. And that might mean that uh, it's becoming harder to vote, for example. And we've seen a lot in the news about how state legislatures, governors, and sometimes even courts 
uh, have a role in determining just how strict voting rules are within the state, which means things like voter identification laws, things like gerrymandering and redistricting come into play with that, uh, because that also has a question of that uh, fairness. How fair is it for two or three or four candidates? Uh, do they all have an equal shot at winning? Well, in the United States, generally, no, at least two people maybe, but uh, in the two-party system, we kind of make that even more complicated. And that's a whole nother bag. Like you can start to feel the jelly falling through your fingers, even as you're talking about it. The other part of that is also what's usually referred to as procedural justice. Outside of just elections, democracy is also making sure that when conflicts do arise between two individuals or an individual in the state, so criminal and civil law, does everybody have an equal shot at proving their innocence? Since we kind of start from that premise of you're innocent until you're proven guilty, um, does everybody have an equal shot with that? So this is where we start bringing in things like uh, systemic racism and how that might affect judicial systems. And there's been a lot of work studying how representation in state legislatures and executives and in courts, uh, how that affects the ability of getting uh, equal justice under the law, as we like to say, as part of that. Uh, it's also questions regarding uh, laws that might restrict uh, individuals based upon prior offenses. Um, so three strikes laws are kind of a popular uh, sort of focus point with that and how, you know, you, if your first strike and second strike maybe were nonviolent offenses, but your third strike uh, was something a little bit more aggressive, that still means life in prison, even if it's kind of the first time you've done something a little bit beyond, you know, just shoplifting, basically. Um, so those are kind of part of that as well, and uh, really sort of studying how we kind of break these down into these very specific notions of like, oh, we're seeing it decline. Well, we're seeing laws making it more and more strict to be able to vote in the election. Uh, we're seeing uh, districts being redrawn in ways that make it almost impossible for anybody other than a specific person and a specific party to win. Um, we're seeing, uh, you know, protections for certain individuals so that if they commit a crime, it's not considered a crime, but for other individuals, if they commit even a lesser version of the same thing, they go away for 50, 60, 70, the rest of their lives. Uh, and that kind of limits that question of fairness that is really the heart of democracy. Now, I know that you've been working through the, these larger questions of democracy in the court. So I want to turn to that with the, the Supreme Court. Um, so again, for listeners who have you know, been paying a little attention to the fact that there have been a lot of decisions recently and everyone's been talking about those specific decisions, first, I'm, I'm thinking about the Supreme Court and you know, is there, what is the main purpose of the Supreme Court? And then is it, you know, are we seeing a court now that you would argue is kind of overstepping its bounds or is it doing what it's supposed to be doing? In the simplest of terms, the court is technically doing what it's supposed to be doing. But the problem with saying that is that what courts are supposed to be doing is not in any way, shape, or form clear. The Constitution doesn't actually express what judicial power is. 
all that it expresses is what type of cases can judges decide on. Uh, this is what they've called jurisdiction. And if you go to Article 3, Section 2, there's a kind of a laundry list of types of cases that the federal courts can take and make a decision on. Uh, implicitly within that, since courts are adversarial, there are two sides who disagree on something, there's a conflict, uh, and they're looking for somebody to decide who's right and who's wrong. We say that at its most base level, all courts are there to simply settle conflicts between two parties. So at that level, sure, the court is technically doing, and all courts are technically doing their jobs, because if, say, you and I had a disagreement about something uh, and we wanted to take it to court, as people like to say, uh, we could have an independent judge, somebody that has no stake in the case because they don't know you or me, listen to both sides of the story uh, and decide which side fits with what the law says, and then hand, that down, hand down that decision and we have to adhere to it. You and I have to adhere to it. Now, where things get a little tricky is that in 1803, uh, Chief Justice Marshall decided that courts also have this extra power that's not actually in the Constitution anywhere. Uh, this is the incredibly famous case of Marbury versus Madison. It gets a bit of a shout out in Hamilton, uh, interestingly enough. In the case, to kind of boil it down to its barest essentials, uh, Marshall decides that uh, it is the duty of the court to, he says, quoting, uh, emphatically say what the law is. Uh, this sets up what's called judicial review, uh, which is the power of the court to look at laws and say whether or not they adhere to the Constitution. Not in the Constitution anywhere that judges have that power, but Marshall kind of makes this very interesting argument that since judges swear an oath to uphold the Constitution above all else, uh, which is a, uh, an oath that every public official makes, so we're clear, not just judges, but every public official, uh, and that the Constitution is supreme above all other laws, that as a result, judges alone have this interpretive power to look at a law and say that this law doesn't reflect what the Constitution says. And that when we have judges that really dig into what the Constitution means beyond it's just simple words on a page, that can be good or bad, really kind of falling under where your ideology falls. And that leads us to a understanding that, well, judges are also making ideological decisions because interpretation is all based on our perception of what is the reality. What do I think the Constitution says? Uh, beyond just kind of the simplistic notion of how we like to treat ideology and you know, popular press about how this, uh, that kind of mixture of ideology and partisanship, judges come with their own perception of what the reality of the Constitution is and they apply it to any conflict that they see and as a result of that, if you have conservative judges, they're going to read the Constitution conservatively and they're going to make conservative decisions. Uh, and it has nothing to do with the conflict or the law. It has everything to do with what do they believe the law says.
So that can mean that they have the opportunity to step very much out of bounds uh, unless someone or something checks them, like keeps them from going that far. Okay. So let's pause for just a moment. Let me, I want to reintroduce you to everyone who may be just tuning in and being like, who is this brilliant person who's on the radio right now? (laughs) So hi everyone. This is Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans, and I've been chatting with Michael Romano, who is an associate professor of political science at Shenandoah University in Winchester, Virginia, about the Supreme Court. Now you bring up something about checking the court. So how do we do that? I mean, there are a lot of people right now in the U.S. who would like to quote unquote check the powers of the Supreme Court. And I've been seeing people protesting outside of judges' homes and and even following them to restaurants and things like that. Like, what is the proper way, I guess, that is kind of built into our Constitution or even that has come since the writing of our Constitution that would allow the public to kind of hold these judges or justices accountable or to check the court? It's funny because all you need to do to know how do you check a court is go back to Article 3 and the first sentence. Uh, Article 3 lays out what the judicial branch is in the Constitution. And it says that the entire structure, uh, including the jurisdiction of the federal court system, is decided upon by Congress. Uh, So the easiest and simplest check to talk about there is that Congress can change almost anything that they want about the courts at any time. All they have to do is pass a law. They don't have to amend the Constitution. They don't have to go through some incredibly difficult, impossible process of, you know, getting every single state to agree that this is what we, the courts need to look like. All they have to do is go through the lawmaking process as is. Uh, now, that isn't incredibly simple, as anybody that spent a lot of time paying attention to the lawmaking process knows. But it is far simpler than most people actually imagine. Like We can add more people to the court. That's kind of the big popular, you know, pack the court question, which would, the proponents of it argue, would balance out the ideology of the court a little bit better. We are very much tilted right now. Uh, in a conservative direction, which means that we're going to more often than not get conservative decisions as a result. So, you know, adding more justices to the court or adding more judges to the judiciary across the board would hopefully level that out to where maybe we get more moderate decisions because no justice gets to across the board make the decision all on their own. They have to work with others. Uh, which is where we see kind of disagreements and bargaining between what language gets put into a decision, what language gets taken out of a decision, and so on. The other check to really understand about this is uh, where the state courts actually come into play. In my first book with Todd Curry, we talk about how judges write for audiences, and those audiences kind of span out in various circles uh, from those you know, two parties in a case, so you and I, in the original example that I was giving, uh, outward to um, the broader legal community, which would include other judges who read this decision and decide how they're going to interpret that decision. So the interpretation is never done for, in a judge's work. Right? We like to say that the Supreme Court is the highest court, it is the law of the land. But that actually isn't true because what they decide has to go back down and 
independent courts in each state get to read that and decide how that applies to their own laws, because each state has its own constitution as well. And the state high courts are solely responsible for the interpretation of these state constitutions. So, you know, the court decides that uh, the New York gun case is actually a great example of this in some ways. The court decided that the uh, current law on the books in New York was a violation of the Second Amendment. That doesn't mean that New York just has to throw up their hands and say, well, I guess, you know, we have to obey what the Second Amendment says. The state legislature is already rewriting the law and the state courts in New York are already looking at that case and saying, well, yeah, but we that doesn't mean we have to listen to you entirely. And other states can decide to look at that and say, well, I guess that means we have to liberalize our gun laws even more. Uh, which I think Youngkin, uh, Governor Youngkin in Virginia said something kind of similar on those lines uh, after the New York gun case came out uh, and after the Dobbs case came out with abortion as well. But other states can just as easily say, we're going to enshrine these in our constitution and now our constitutions are supreme law of our land. And now we get into a fight over federalism, like whose constitution reigns supreme when the U.S. constitution is kind of quiet. Uh, so there are a lot of ways in which we can technically check uh, the U.S. Supreme Court in this way and kind of pressure the system in this way as well. Uh, another popular case from the last term, just as a kind of final example, was the um, the school prayer case where a coach uh led a prayer on the 50-yard line. Um, There's been a lot of controversy over whether or not that violates other students' religious liberty. And the uh, other religions are putting pressure on that now. Some outside of the mainstream, like the Satanic Church, for example, uh, is now putting pressure that if you're going to allow a Christian prayer on the 50-yard line, they want a Satanic prayer on the 50-yard line. And if religious liberty means religious liberty for everyone, it has to mean that they get that right too. So it can't be that kind of comes back to that equality and fairness doctrine. It's like, it can't be liberty for thee, but not for me. Right. I actually saw that. Uh, I saw an article about that down in Florida. And yeah. I, I need to contact the, the person who's leading that and see if they want to come on the show sometime uh, yeah. to, to chat about this, because it's really interesting. And they've been putting pressure on not only with this case, but there have been other cases specific about religion in public spaces and different rulings. And they want to make sure that all religions are represented equally uh, in these different spaces. The Satanic Church is a fascinating case study in religious liberty, actually. So, Yeah. Now, I've, I've been reading... Um, a couple different pieces. I mean, there are a lot of political scientists that have been, you know, tooting the, the horns on the fact that a lot of these decisions are affecting democracy or are perhaps the result of something happening within our democracy that's leading to some of these decisions. Uh, one of the pieces that I read talked about how um, that the, the Supreme Court is no longer deciding these cases in a way that is technically, quote unquote, legal. And what they mean by that is, by the rule of law. Yeah. What is the rule of law? <laughs> is that like, does that just mean like, okay, whatever happened before, I'm going to stick with it. Right. Uh, to some degree. Yes. Uh, 
you know, it, it's another one of those really kind of messy questions. In fact, there was a, a, a fairly serious debate over whether or not that term means anything at all uh, a few years back and whether or not we should just avoid using it entirely because do we just mean the same thing as what we mean by democracy or what we like about democracy becomes the rule of law. And arguably, the rule of law is not necessarily something that's democratic either. Uh, The rule of law means adhering to what the law says. That can be as authoritarian as it is democratic, really. Uh, It's obedience to it. And digging deeper into that means, first and foremost, that when laws are passed, they are obeyed at a base level. Uh, but that also the public puts enough trust into the system to be willing to have the system control their lives, right? Because governments kind of synchronon, their their necessary reason for being is to restrict our behaviors. They pass laws that restrict our behaviors and keep us from doing certain things. That's what every law technically does. Uh, the rule of law means that when we look at, say, a law saying you're not allowed to jaywalk, we don't jaywalk, right? So to some degree, our adherence to the rule of law is really based upon what we think are good laws versus bad laws. But there is a a heart to that of, you know, if you're pulled over for speeding, as another example, and you know you were speeding, you're not going to say, well, I'm allowed to speed because I don't believe in that law. No, no. We all accept and understand that if we're going 70 and a 55 and we get pulled over, that's on us, right? Like that's, and that is really the kind of deeper understanding of what we mean when we say the rule of law there. Did you see the case um, in Texas from, I guess it was two days ago, it made the, made the news yesterday, where the woman is now, uh, there was a woman who was pulled over in the HOV lane who is yep. pregnant. It, and, and so it makes me think about the rule of law in that case, right? It, it is a, is a baby who is not yet born than a, a person. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, uh, there's a, there's a term for when you so strictly follow the rules basically to aggressively mess with the person. Right. So like your mom, like I just kind of to use like a family example, like your, your mom tells you to go to bed Uh, but she doesn't tell you to go to sleep. And so you go to bed, you get in bed, but you're like playing on your, you know, your, your switch or your PlayStation, or you're reading a book or something is like, well, you are technically obeying the rules. You did what she told you to do, but that's not what she meant. And now you're kind of putting pressure on that system. Right. And the the Texas case with the woman who was in the HOV lane is like that. It's that same sort of scenario of like, okay, I'm going to obey the law here. And the law in Texas says that my unborn fetus is a person from day one. So there are two people in this car and you need two people to be in the HOV lane. I'm in the HOV lane. You either have to. And this is kind of the. I don't want to call it genius because we have to still see if it works, Uh, but kind of the genius of this sort of pressure system is that the judge either has to say that the unborn fetus is not a person, 
which completely undercuts the abortion law in Texas, or pregnant women get to use the HOV lane, which is it going to be? That's a great question. Now, I also know that you've been looking at this comparatively, looking at other countries and their courts and democracy. How do we stack up to other countries with this? I mean, are we like our, our court system versus other court systems? Is Are there large correlations between kind of what you see happening here versus in other countries? The dangerous answer to that is yes. Uh, so in the comparative literature that really pays some attention to the courts and how courts play a role in either stabilizing democracy or causing it to what we call a backslide into authoritarianism. Uh, there was a book by uh, Levitsky and Ziblatt called How Democracies Die. In it, they spend a lot of time talking about guardrails, the kind of norms and informal cultures of democracy that have to be protected in order for democracy to stay stable. Because Democracy is inherently unstable most of the time. And one of those guardrails are the courts. Uh, The more that courts decide that precedent just doesn't really matter, uh, and and precedent meaning adherence to past decisions, that rule of law concept that we were talking about, and that they can just decide a case solely based on their own personal beliefs, That's a dangerous guardrail to lose because with it, pretty much everything goes. It's what the authors of the How Democracies Die book uh, call capturing the referees. And so from a lot of the comparative perspective, judicial overreach in this way is a symptom that's caused by either executives, presidents, parliaments, uh, basically consolidating power and then stripping away rights. And then when we go to the courts to say, this isn't fair, the courts have been captured by those executives already. And they say, well, we agree with, you know, the president here. So tough. Uh, And we kind of have to shrug our shoulders because we no longer have any recourses because the legislature is obeying the executive, the executive has the courts. And so where are we supposed to go in government? And that's where that backslide starts to happen, because the more that this starts to occur, the more people start to lose trust in the system, the less willing they are to obey those laws, democracy starts to break down. Uh, So that's incredibly dangerous. And the kind of getting back to the heart of that question about what about the United States compared to others is that we are at something of a tipping point there. Uh, After the most recent Supreme Court term came out, the uh, European Union's Committee on Human Rights actually condemned the United States uh, for its, and solely focused on the fact that the court had largely dismantled several guardrails, and it looked like they were going to dismantle even more in the coming future. We've seen things like this happen in places like Poland. In uh, most, uh, the most recent example that I can think of off the top of my head is 2018 uh, in Zimbabwe, actually. Uh, Zimbabwe has had a history of democratic transition and democratic decline. Everything looked in 2018 uh, during that presidential election year in that country to be moving in the democratic transition direction. But the uh, incumbent party, 
the party in power, which had an authoritarian leader, had captured the courts. The courts, which were responsible for deciding the outcome of the election, the president and the president's party got to decide who the chief justice was just before the uh, election. Uh, and they chose a person who decided to essentially ignore the public will. And as a result, that country fell into some fairly violent uprisings as a result of that. Uh, nobody believed that that election was legitimate because the ballots, the vast majority of ballots essentially just got ignored, uh, got thrown away. And so bringing that back to the U.S. example, the Supreme Court is already poised to take on a number of election issues in the next term uh, that will determine the outcome of the next presidential election in 2024. After this last term, this is where that tipping point comes into play. After this last term where we've seen that the court is very willing to just ignore precedent when it disagrees with what their favorite outcome is. This poses a pretty dangerous threat because their favorite outcome is probably also conservative presidents and conservative legislatures that are making these decisions. And electorally, we're allowing them to make these decisions in a conservative fashion. And so it, it's not to say that conservatism is dangerous. It's to say that the decisions that are being made are stripping away democracy right now. You know, Wisconsin just recently decided that ballot boxes are unconstitutional. Uh, basically, you can't drop off your ballot in a secure location uh, to vote early uh, because for some reason that would violate the norm of going one single day a year to vote. Wow. That's a loud, large bell uh, about warning us regarding our democracy that we all need to pay attention to. So thank you for being on the show today. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you missed any piece of the broadcast today, you can listen to this program wherever you listen to podcasts like Spotify and Amazon. And if you're able, please consider making a donation to WEHC. Gifts help ensure a lasting commitment to unique radio programming that brings the people of Southwest Virginia together in an appreciation of our people and our place. You can make a donation online at wehcfm.com and select make a gift. Have a great week, everybody.